From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. While international borders remain closed and thousands of Australians are still stranded overseas, 1,200 tennis players, officials and support staff have flown into Melbourne to take part in the Australian Open. The players are undertaking a forced two-week quarantine, but the different facilities offered to them, based on their ranking and their profile, have raised doubts about how fair the tournament will be. Today, journalist Ben Rothenberg on the debate over the decision to go ahead with the Australian Open and what it could mean for the future of global sports. Ben, the pandemic has transformed the world of professional sports, including tennis. So let's talk about the impact of the spread of the virus over the last year in terms of of the big tournaments. How have players had to adapt? Just like almost everything else in the world, the tennis tours have been dramatically, profoundly impacted by the pandemic. Starting in early March, when the big tournament in Indian Wells, California, was cancelled just the night before it was set to begin. A major California tennis tournament is just the latest to cancel due to coronavirus concerns. And we are here in front of the Indian Wells Tennis Garden, where the BNP Paribas Open is supposed to be held. It was announced earlier today. And once that cancelled, it really quickly snowballed. You know, later that week, the NBA season. And the NBA has made the decision, they have just announced, that they are suspending play, finishing after tonight's games. All sorts of things started grinding to a halt. Augusta National, home of the Masters, postponing the prestigious golf tournament. This afternoon, the NCAA announced that its men's and women's basketball tournaments have been canceled. The Boston Marathon, scheduled for April, postponed until September. This morning, NASCAR releasing a statement that the events this weekend will be postponed until, honestly, they're not sure when. Uh, most notably, biggest domino to fall of all was Wimbledon. Breaking news, and it is not unexpected and it is that uh, Wimbledon is now cancelled. The Grand Slam event in England annually, very prestigious historic event, was cancelled relatively early on. And there was one infamous aborted attempt by tennis players to try to sort of start their own tour in defiance of maybe the pandemic realities. Grigor Dimitrov, Borna Choric and Viktor Troicki, who have all tested positive after playing Djokovic's Adria Tour. The Adria Tour, which was an event in the Balkans in several different cities there, started by Novak Djokovic, a top-ranked player, uh, started holding events that had no social distancing protocols whatsoever to speak of. The tournament in Serbia and Croatia was organised by Djokovic's brother, Djorje, who promised it would be a safe event. And that quickly turned into a super spreader event that gained infamy in, in the world as sort of being irresponsible behaviour. And now the world number one has become the fourth player at the tournament to contract COVID-19. The tours really didn't get back underway meaningfully until August of last year, uh, ramping up for the U.S. Open, which wound up being held, uh, but completely closed to the public, no fans, in sort of a bubble environment. Because there still was a decent amount of COVID, even if not at its peak, in New York, in the United States. And a lot of players opted out of this tournament. Rafael Nadal, Ashley Barty, who is the current world number one player, and Simona Halep, the current number two player. So it's just been very different. Everything kind of has a, an asterisk attached to use the sort of sports uh, stats debate about this. It hasn't felt totally back to normal yet, and I'm not sure exactly when that'll happen. Maybe maybe it's Australian Open represents that, but it's it's been very different for sure. 
And so the Australian Open, it's really the first serious attempt to, to restart international tennis. And and throughout the year, it wasn't really clear, as you say, whether it would take place given the lockdown that we that we had here in Melbourne and and the international border closures. But it is scheduled to kick off in a couple of weeks. So can you tell me how significant the Australian Open is for showing how professional sports can operate? Yeah, it's a very significant attempt and a very significant model because I think in New York, the bubble was trying to keep the tennis players safe from the outside world, right? It was sealing off the outside so the players wouldn't get infected from outside contaminants. Whereas here, it's kind of completely flipped. The players are the ones who are being put through this essentially purifying system of the quarantine for 14 days so they don't infect the public because Australia's uh, COVID numbers are so much better than pretty much anywhere else in the world, certainly where the other Grand Slam events are in the US and in France and in the UK. So this is a big deal that the Australian Open is trying this much more time-intensive model of having the players get here two weeks early demanding this event. But then once that all finishes, it should be able to be a pretty business-as-normal type tournament. There will be fans in attendance, maybe not as many as before, but still you know, thousands and thousands of fans at each session. Uh, players able to move freely about the city and go to restaurants whenever else they might like once they're cleared through the quarantine protocol. So it really is an ambitious undertaking and it's a lot for, you know, a relatively short part of the season. It's only They're only going to be playing tournaments in Melbourne for about three weeks. And so it's a lot of work for a relatively short amount of tennis. But the Grand Slams are, are huge events. And you see by how many top players did make the choice to come to Australia that for vast, vast majority of them, they decided it's worth it. So, Ben, the tennis players who arrived in Australia for the Open, what were they expecting? And, and what actually, what was the reality of what they got when they arrived? The tennis players had been led to expect that they would be able to leave their hotel rooms for five hours a day for training, for fitness at the Melbourne Park Centre. And then once a few positive tests started popping up on the flights into Australia, the charter flights, which Tennis Australia had arranged for the players. Well, 72 Australian Open players are waking up in quarantine this morning, banned from daily training after another COVID case was found aboard a charter flight. The crackdowns became even harsher on the players. They weren't allowed to leave their room at all for 14 days, stuck in there 24 hours. And I think maybe Tennis Australia also hadn't done enough making them aware of just what those risks were, that really things could go pretty haywire quickly with just a handful of positive tests on a uh, given flight. Looks like you're in prison, huh? (laughs) Spaniard Roberto Bautista Agut directed his anger at the Victorian government. It's a completely disaster because of that, because... I think they felt a bit uh, caught off guard and and a bit betrayed maybe by this, a lot of them who hadn't necessarily read the materials as thoroughly or just sort of glanced over that part of it. And I think it really hurts them both physically and also just psychologically, knowing that you're not going to be able to maybe train as much as some of your other peers can. If the person in the, you know, who's in the room next to you wasn't on one of these compromised flights, but you were, and then you have to play against him or her in the first round, you're going to feel massively disadvantaged. And so I think a lot of them probably already feel like they're losing even before they take the court. And that's going to be a tough thing for them to overcome. Right. And so can you tell me more about the inequality between players that is arising as a result of this situation? Because it sounds like some players have been able to train when others haven't. And there's a fair bit of disparity in their experiences since they've arrived in Australia. Yeah. So there's a few different sort of itineraries that 
players would have gotten here. Some of them were set from the beginning. Uh, Tennis Australia routed a handful, a small handful of the very top players, the biggest stars in the game, to South Australia, to Adelaide, where they were going to have a separate quarantining facility where they had more people allowed, more spacious amenities. They have kitchens and things in their apartments they're staying in or their suites they're staying in. As far as quarantine goes, this is about as good as it gets. Today, world number one Novak Djokovic made the most of a break from his hotel room to train at Memorial Drive. And they're having a much more relaxed, uh, hospitable time of things. All seven stars here, including Grand Slam champion Serena Williams, can hit the courts daily under police escort as long as they've cleared... This is just the top players, so on the men's side it's only Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, Dominic Team, and then the practice partners they brought. And on the women's side, it's Naomi Osaka, Serena Williams, and Simona Halep. So it's really seems to be advantaging just the star players. And, and Craig Tiley who's the tournament director for the Australian Open, admitted as much, just saying, you know, if you're a, a star or top player, you sort of have earned preferential treatment, and that's how it's going to be. Uh, the, the majority of players have been really good, and there's some that have been upset, and, and we get it because they are in a position that they're not used to having to be in their rooms and uh, and in, in getting ready for a Grand yeah. Slam. This is not what they, they would have expected. But, uh, it is you know, separate states and a whole 700 kilometers between them has made this manifestly a lot more visible in a way that I think a lot of players who are in Melbourne not being able to get outside as regularly, especially the ones who are now in this unexpectedly tough 14-day hard quarantine, I think they feel even more hard done by with the Adelaide situation than they might have otherwise. We'll be back in a moment. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As a a. 7am listener, you value the story behind the headlines. That's why you should read Post, a free daily newsletter bringing you the top five news stories of the day, summarising each of their key points. Sign up today at thesaturdaypaper.com.au slash newsletters. Ben, you've outlined how this year's Australian Open is an attempt to sort of bypass COVID-19 and create a tournament that, that works, but the rules that have been put in place have led to an uneven playing field. And obviously having an even playing field is fundamental to any sport. So can you talk to me a bit about that historically, how that has been the case in tennis? Yeah, for sure. I mean, tennis, like any every sport, I think, tries to be as, as fair as it can be. And, you know, each player has the same balls they play with. Each player gets to serve the same number of times. And they switch sides of the court every two games to make sure there's no advantages for wind or sun glare or whatever it might be. But, you know, it is still a world where once you reach the top, it's in some ways cushier up there. Obviously, there's more pressure and people are gunning for you and you have a target on your back and things like that. But it's it can be a pretty cushy place when you have a star treatment and have the, the fans on your side and the tournament on your side and sponsors. And you can afford, you know, physiotherapists and mental coach and masseurs and 
you know, private chef, some players would travel with at various times, you know, and then you play somebody who's ranked 150th in the world who can't even afford to, to pay a coach because players have to pay their own coaches salaries in tennis. I'm like, you know, a team sport. And I think in a lot of ways, this Australian Open is just putting a further spotlight on those disparities. Mm, so is what we're seeing now at the Australian Open a reflection of this longer term trend where where rich players get preferential treatment? I think so, yeah. And it certainly has not just come at the Australian Open. It's happened before. U.S. Open last year, uh, a bunch of the top players were allowed to stay at private houses uh, near the tournament outside of the sort of bubble. If they were have the resources to pay for their own, you know, 24-hour security guard to sort of monitor their movements and things like that. So it was a very exclusive group of high-earning players who were able to make that decision. And it did have a big competitive advantage for, for them in the end. Those were players who did well at the tournament who were the ones who were able to sort of pay for that advantage of peace and quiet and privacy. Uh, those sorts of things, those sorts of amenities and luxuries that players can invest in themselves in really do, time in, time out, show themselves on the court and who wins and who loses. And, you know, in tennis, it's interesting. In sports, historically, people love the underdog a lot of times, but in tennis, that's not always the case. People love, he's not playing this year's tournament, but Roger Federer, who's won you know so many times in 20 Grand Slam titles, people just root for him to, you know, be at his best and to dominate whoever he's across from and cheer that on. And, and it really is a star-driven sport in tennis. And I think it's structured that way. You know, there's huge, huge breakout stars that come out of the sport. And if you're somebody who's even amazingly world-class, like, I don't know, number 15 in the world, the 15th best in the world of what you do, you might be relatively anonymous in the eyes of, of most uh, semi-casual tennis fans. It, it really is a sport with, with massive, massive differences between the, the haves and the have-nots. And there's no doubt that sports administrators are watching how this plays out. What lessons do you think that they will learn? Do you think that this is being seen as a model that that has worked and, and could influence how something like the Olympics can operate in this climate? Or do you think that it's being seen as, as perhaps too messy and too complicated? I think it's being seen as a lot because Tennis Australia and the Victorian government and whatever to the extent that their funding is attached to one another really has shelled out an unbelievable amount of money to do this, paying for all the players uh, to have their two-week quarantines, paying for all these charter flights around the world to Melbourne. And it's not those are not short flights either that you're paying for here with these uh, nearly empty planes bringing people 17 different flights they, they paid for coming to Melbourne, staggered across the group. So that's very tough to replicate, but there is a lot of attention being paid by sports administrators to how the Australian Open goes because it really is probably the most ambitious undertaking of any international sporting event so far since the pandemic began. And I think one of the groups that's watching this most closely would be the Tokyo Olympics administrators uh, who delayed their event from previously being scheduled for 2020 to 2021, starting in July of 2021. And they're going to be watching Australian Open very closely, but they're already, I think, pessimistic. If it took an Australian level of money and time and commitment to do the Olympics, which is a vastly larger event with so many different sports and probably 10 times more people involved conservatively. Uh, I'm not sure they would think it was worth it. I'm not sure they think they could pull it off. And, and time will tell. tell. I mean, we we'll, may feel very differently about the Australian Open once it's done and seen its success and people enjoyed actually watching the tennis. But if anything happens to the Melbourne community and the population that is at all traceable to the tennis, then I would have to think they would shut it down very quickly and that it would be seen as a massive mistake to have ever even thought it was possible. So the risk is absolutely there. And the reward, 
at best is is a good tennis tournament, which is, I love tennis, but it seems like relatively out of balance when you're talking about how much more COVID spread would disrupt uh, Melbourne as a community. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. With award-winning news coverage and reviews, the Saturday paper is essential reading for everybody. For a limited time, subscribe to a year of our quality, independent journalism, and you'll receive the Saturday paper's stainless steel coffee cup, made in collaboration with Fresco, for free. Subscribe from just $2.10 a week. Simply visit thesaturdaypaper.com.au forward slash offer. The Saturday Paper. No hot takes. Also in the news today, the New South Wales government has announced a major easing of restrictions across the state, with household gatherings increased to a maximum of 30 people. Masks will remain mandatory for public transport and places of worship, while they're recommended in retail settings. And the federal government has been ordered to pay compensation to more than 1,000 asylum seekers after accidentally leaking their personal information. The Australian Information and Privacy Commissioner found that the name, date of birth, citizenship and boat arrival details of asylum seekers was published online in 2014. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.